0: hopefully you'll turn keep your Bible to open to Luke chapter 1 as we jump into our, none of the original k- Christmas carols. And basically what we've been doing is seeing that uh, there's some songs, and we talk about Christmas carols that we sing every year, but the original kind of songs, if you will, and I'm using that term loosely, uh, times of praise or prophecy that God had within the New Testament during the, the birth or surrounding the event of the birth of Christ, whether that's with Christ himself or with John the Baptist, um, we can see these original carols. Now, it's, it's nice to be the together the house the Lord in, in other words uh, to to find in some ways an anchor peace i don 't know about you, but watching the news this past week could easily lead to depression. Uh, you can see see what 's going on in the world we see the rise of is, is, uh, t- of terrorism we see people showing up in different places and shooting or stabbing someone uh, we see the rise of sexual immorality continued rise of uh, of just uh, uh, abortion, and, and, and you, see, uh, you see gender discrimination, you see racial discrimination, you see all of these different things that are going on in our world today, and it just sometimes causes us to throw our hands up in the air, because people, you even see people talking online, and people aren't talking to one another, they're talking at one another, or over one another, and they're just throwing out their gunslingers of whatever article that they can find to, to cite someone else, or to trump another person, and, and it just becomes more and more difficult. And, and sometimes you wonder, Lord, where are you and what are you doing in the middle of all this? With all the stuff that's going on in our world today, people stop and they go, the world is changing right before our eyes in ways that we've never seen before. And, and we want to know what's going on. And, and some for us, the world that we grow up in no longer exists. And we stop and we, we despair. But we need to go back to the scripture and understand something, that God is at work in ways that we cannot begin to possibly fathom. And we need to rest in that knowledge. Matter of fact, uh, a man named Francis Schaefer, who is a uh, Christian apologist in the middle of the 20th century, he wrote a book one time called God is There and He is Not Silent. And I think sometimes as we look around today, we wonder, where is God in the midst of all this? Is He working? And we don't just ask in our society, but in our own lives God, where are you? Are you there? And God is telling us time and time again, I am there and I'm not silent. You know, in in the time of the scriptures, especially where we're coming at today in this passage in Luke chapter 1, uh, we just come out of a time known as the period of, of silence, 400 years of silence, where the Old Testament ends in the book of Malachi to where it begins with the story of the birth of Christ. There's this 400 year gap where it's known as the period of silence. It's also known as the intertestamental period, where we don't hear a word from God. And, and people were wondering, you know, what's going on? What was God doing in the midst of that time? And as we, we, if we were to delve into history, we'd see that God was at work. God brought uh, Alexander the Great to power, and he ended up uh, conquering what was then the known world, which allowed for the spread of the Greek language and culture, which going into assimilating into other cultures, which allowed the dissemination of the gospel to be translated uh, and, and to flow freely because people then could speak one common language, and they weren't divided. And you saw even with the Old Testament, God translated into Greek, uh, was known as the Septuagint, and, and people had a familiarity with one another, and so when the time of, of uh, uh, the Romans came, I mean, the Romans took it even further, that they made roads, that all roads led to Rome, and people could travel it, and gave, gave them Roman citizenship, and gave them freedom, and we see d- during the time of Christ, when Christ comes on this scene, it's, it's the perfect moment, in that God had been preparing the culture and all the world around it for the dissemination of the gospel into the known world. And God was at work, and so God wasn't silent as such in that period of time. And if we look within our world today, we might think that God is is silent as we see tragedy after tragedy going on around us, but the reality is, is that God is at work in ways that we can't begin to fathom. Consider for what's been going on right now, which we've talked about and we've seen the Syrian refugee crisis that is going on. And we see not just within Syria, we see it with our brothers and sisters that have come from Congo, from those that come from Burma. I mean, we have more people in the history of the world on the move. I mean, it has been estimated that each year 60 million people are moving off of their homelands. And according to our own brother Chandler Eam, 405 million people, if I want to make sure I get this right since he's sitting in the audience today, um, he, he's, he's, he was saying, it is projected by, by 2050, the popul- population of international migrants alone would reach 405 million people. And people are moving. People are moving all over the world, moving from their different lands. And, but it's God, I believe, God is at work. God is on the move. God is bringing people that if didn't know who Jesus was to the saving knowledge into lands where they could hear about who Jesus is. And many of us freak out. But the reality is, is God's doing this. In some ways, I think because we refuse to go, God's bringing him to us. And it's fascinating. Considering, considering what's going on, and, and we've been talking about, and I know many people have been alarmed of what's been going on, and they're seeing uh, what's going on with Islamic terrorism. And the rise and seeing Syrian refugees and people coming. And I think what's going on within the Muslim world right now, and in comparison with Christianity. You know, uh, with people sharing their faith in Jesus and the inroads into the Islamic community, that there were zero movements to Christianity in the first 18 centuries of Christianity. Did you know that? And I mean uncoerced movements. Unfortunately, there were some difficult moments when there was force that was being issued, and I don't consider those to be genuine, but there were zero movements of people coming to Christ from from Muslim backgrounds uh, in the first 18 centuries of Christianity. And it wasn't until the 19th century that there were two movements. And let me classify a movement. A movement is 100 churches planted and 1,000 baptized believers within a... And I want to make sure that I, I get this right. Um, a movement is... 100 churches or 1,000 baptisms that occur over a two-decade period, so within a 20-year period of time. So in the first 18 centuries of Christianity, there are zero non-coerced movements. In fact, we hardly even see the two interacting with one another. It's almost as if there is an iron curtain, if you will. Um, But by the end of the 19th century, there's a change, a faint heartbeat in the horizon. And people think it's silent, that God's not working, but he is that there are two movements by the end of the 19th century. And in the 20th century, it, it, up until the mid-1960s, we see uh, actually starting in the mid-1960s, 11 movements to Christ in the 20th century. Okay? So it doesn't seem like a whole lot until you consider what's happened in the last 15 years. In the last 15 years, there are 82 movements. 82 movements of people coming to know who Jesus is. That's incredible. Because, and we think, God, is it silent? God is what's going on in this chaos, and it's cut God off by mistake. It's not. God is working. And he's speaking to us in the midst of silence. And I look back, and I see what's going on in Zechariah's life. And God is preparing, and he's preparing in this silent period. He is doing something that is amazing, that just brings awe to our minds as we see how God was orchestrating things behind the scenes. And we see that God is at work in our world, that he is there, and he's at work in your life, and he's there, and he is not silent. He might seem silent right now, but he is working in and through your situation in ways that you didn't think or believe could ever happen, but God is working in your life. And today we're going to look at Zachariah, we're going to examine him, and we're going to examine Elizabeth, and we're going to see that God was working in their silence, and through Zechariah, we can, we can rest in this knowledge of what God has doing as we, we begin to uh, jump into this wonderful text and see what's going on in their lives and see as an example in some way of how he's working in our own. But before we go any further, let's pray. Father, please speak to us today. Show us that you are near, that you are the God who is there, and you are the God who is not silent. Um, show us who you are. And that no matter what's going on around us, though it, seem, it might seem utter chaos and, and we just throw our hands up in the air and we're scared. But Lord, help us to rest in the knowledge of who you are. That you are the one who is able to calm this storm. That you are the one who is able to speak peace in the midst of all this. So Lord, speak to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So first of all, we're going to see and examine Zechariah's life, and I want us to be able to explore the man together. Let's explore this man, Zechariah. That's the first point that you can write down within your notes. We're going to see that God is at work, and we can see that by how um, as we rest in the knowledge, in this knowledge, as we explore the man. Now, first of all, we want to look at he and uh, Elizabeth. And uh, Evangeline read some of the text, but she didn't get to read the entire story. Just we didn't have for sake of time. But I'd like us to look at Luke chapter one verse 5. And we read, in the days of Herod, king of Judea. Now, Herod uh, is an Idumean. Iju- we sometimes just skip over that. We see the name Herod. But Herod is one messed up dude. He's half Jewish, half Gentile. He's appointed by the Roman government to lead the Jews. He was a paranoid ruler. He, he was also a man who had a desirous thirst to build, had massive building projects. If you were to go to Israel today, you'd see some of his building projects still standing. He, he also helped construct the Jewish temple. He, he built uh, Caesarea Maritima. I mean, he built uh, just beautiful palaces and Compounds all over the place, but he was paranoid. Matter of fact, he was always um, nervous that someone's going to try to take his power away. So he had his some uh, had his wife killed, and he had some of his sons killed. Matter of fact, they used to have an expression that it was safer to be Herod's pig than it was to be his son. It's a play on words in Greek uh, that the words are very very similar because he would have his sons assassinated, but his pigs would be fine, which were unclean animals. So we see that there's this paranoia that is going on in this time. There, there had been a political tension during that 400-year period of silence when Rome had come to rule. They were forcing and made it forbidden to practice Judaism. And matter of fact, they were requiring them to offer sacrifices and say that Caesar is Lord. And there was a revolt uh, known by the uh, Maccabean, what came known as the Maccabean family, that they revolted. They threw off the yoke of the Roman rule. They set up uh, kind of a Jewish Asmonean, what's known as the Asmonean rule during that period of time. But there was, just, there was disjointed, it wasn't united. And then Rome came back in under Pompey and conquered them again. And this time the Romans are a little bit more paranoid about what's going on within Judaism. They'll Let him practice it, but only at arm's distance and not be able to practice it in its complete purity. Now, see, we see Zechariah coming in the midst of this. There There had been compromise. Many people had kind of bowed the knee to Rome and forsaken their own heritage. But we see here him coming up and we see that he is faithful in following and observing the commands of God. He is a man who loves God, who is seeking to obey God and do what God wants him to do. So as we explore this man, the first thing that I want us to be able to see is that he shows us faithfulness in the midst of silence. Even though all of this stuff was going on around and God hadn't spoken, he kept his eye on God and refused to compromise with the culture around him, refused to bow down. He served God faithfully by serving in the temple. So he is a man who is faithful in the midst of the silence. Now, many of us, I think that's a challenge. We are good as long as things are comfortable and things are going our way. But when God gets silent, we get nervous. We want to take matters into our own hands. We think that God somehow has missed our situation and doesn't know what's going on. We saw that in our previous series as we looked at King Saul. Here's a man that refused to wait and trust on God. But here's a man who is waiting and trusting in God. And we see, though, that he is, he is also um, he is practicing forbearance in a difficult situation. He, he and his wife were praying that God would give them a son. And in the ancient world, that's a death strike for a woman. For a woman not to behave, have a child in the, in the ancient world, I mean, she would be constantly uh, mocked. People would think that she was being judged by God because she couldn't have or uh, children. That there was something wrong with her. It was a mark not just on her, but on her family. Uh, and, and in that world especially, if you couldn't bear children, you would have no one to take care of you when you got older. There wasn't a way for you to be known in the community. All of these social ramifications played a part. And yet, they are not despairing, not taking matters into their own hands. They are continually to pray to God. That video was great, by the way, just in illustrating just how they continue to wait. They continue to pray to the Lord and trust in Him and refuse to take matters into their own hands. So this is a man, he shows us he has this ability to forbear in a difficult situation that he is trusting in the Lord. Now, as we were really jumping into this uh, text together as a staff, one of the things that uh, we started to, to notice is uh, we're looking at his life. And if you'll notice here, it's when um, this angel shows up when he is, when he is uh, serving in the temple. And he is, it says here, as verse 8 of chapter 1, Now while he was serving his priest before God, when his division was on duty, different priests would be serving at different times in the temple. According to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by Lot to enter the temple of the Lord to burn incense. It was a very serious matter. Only one priest could go in. Uh, And usually they'd have to have a belt wrapped around them with bells on them because if they did something wrong, God would just, uh, because God's so holy, he would kill them instantaneously. You'd hear the bell and you'd drag the body out. I mean, this is a very serious thing that he is doing, just offering incense within the temple. And obviously, that's referring before to the Holy of Holies, but uh, I digress. So it says here that they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. They're getting older. Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, uh, let me skip down to verse 10, the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him. I would freak out too. And fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zachariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now this is fascinating. Look at verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent. And Unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words. Literally there, it's faithless. So here's a man that we saw, he was was faithful in the midst of silence, and yet he's praying, and God has answered his prayer, and he doesn't believe it. Why is it that we are more surprised when God answers our prayer than when he doesn't? You ever had that happen? I think that, that Zechariah is a lot like many of us. We're great at following. We're saying, Lord, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to do all this stuff. But you know what? I'm not going to really trust you. I'm going to trust you in what I can understand. But when it comes to these spiritual things that I don't understand, I'm afraid to relinquish control. And I'm going to pray anyway. I'm going to kind of go through the motions, but I really don't believe that you're going to do it. How many of us are like that? How many of us pray and we don't expect an answer? What's wrong with that? I mean, what's wrong with our faith when we, when we don't expect God to show up? Is experience that tells us that maybe we, we ask wrongly with wrong motives. I mean, the scripture does say that. Maybe we don't have an understanding of his will. And so we just have this vague idea of this moral therapeutic deity in the sky that we can pray to that he's for everybody. I mean, there's a controversy this past week with the San Bernardino uh, uh, you know, victims that were there. And, and there was all this argument about whether they should be prayed for or not. And the frustration was with some people because they're saying, don't pray for them if you're not willing to take the steps necessary to take care of the situation. And that just let off a whole other political controversy that I'm not getting into. But my purpose is this. Let's talk about what prayer really is. What is prayer? And why do we have a hard time believing that God answers? Why did this man have a hard time believing that God would answer his prayer? He prayed faithfully for his son. He even says that God heard your prayer. And he's going to give you a son, and he's like, "Are you kidding me?" Seriously, Have you seen? How? It's a little late. Have you seen how old we are?" And he's like, "You don't get it." We don't understand I mean, we have this way to think that God's going to operate in a certain box. God doesn't operate in the box. God is way beyond the box. Power, prayer is powerful. We forget that God delights in giving us, He wants to give us good gifts. Do we, have this, do we believe that God is not good? That he can't intercede in our lives? Or do we believe that he simply won't? Why do we believe that? Why do we have a hard time taking God at his word? Why do we think that God doesn't want to bless us? Or perhaps it's because we we're afraid of really doubling down on our requests because we're afraid that God is not real. Or maybe, just maybe, we've been taught wrong. Prayer is powerful. And prayer, according to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. See, there's nothing wrong that... that for, there's no reason why it was bad that Zechariah asked for a son. That's a natural thing. God says that in Genesis chapter 1, be fruitful and multiply. It is not wrong to say, Lord, I'd like my body to do what everyone else is seemingly doing. I'd like to have a child. Bless your name. His, his motive, I believe, was right. Now, there are some people that have wrong motive and why they're going about it. And that's why James tells us, you know, it's the reason you do not have is because you pray with wrong motives. Your heart's wrong. And sometimes it's just like uh, when you were younger. When I was younger, I don't, I'm gonna, yeah. there was a young lady that I knew that I was like, Lord, I pray that she'll be my wife. And I'm glad that God said no because I never would have met Melissa, my wife. So there was wisdom there. See, God, had, I had a wrong motive. I mean, I had a right desire. I wanted to be married, but it was the wrong person. See, you have to understand what God's will is, that God has something better for us, and God's working in ways that we cannot begin to understand. See, we must be careful of just laying out our, for, uh, our request uh, before God and running away. Just like children, who not, when you did this as a kid, you, might, you didn't do this. You guys were good kids. You didn't ever go knock on your neighbor's door and run away. Did you ever do that? All right. Many of us do that with God. We pray a request, we throw them down, just like a paper boy used to do, and we, we, we run off. Because we don't, we don't expect God to interact with us. We're also afraid of what he will say when he does interact with us. Because we don't want to be brought to the mat for our behavior and our life choices. We see we need to come before God and, his, and come before him with all that is within us. You know, it's interesting. The great Anglican theologian J.I. Packer mentions that many older Christian writers talked about arguing with God in prayer which does not mean that they assumed their wisdom or will was greater than God's rather by arguing they meant telling God what what or telling God why what we have asked for seems to us for the best in light of what we know God's own goals to be it means reflecting on what we really want being still enough to see and determine if this not just what we want but if it's what God wants us to have Tim Keller, uh, pastor of Redeemer Church in Manhattan, mentions that it is a discipline to do this, and those who practice it will find it helps with our desires and may help us revise, sometimes deepening, sometimes lessening, their desires and purposes. It also gives greater power to our prayers so that when we are done, we find we have really cast our burdens on God. And can go out into our lives relieved of their weight. Now, Zechariah prayed, and I believe he really laid his. I believed he had uh, he had essence argued with God. He looked to God to either relieve that desire or meet that desire for a son. (laughs) It, It appears, though, that he was looking for the desire to be relieved rather than the actual request of having a child. But yet, God wanted to show him that He is good and that He is listening. See, we need to reorient our perspective and remind ourselves that God does delight in answering our prayer requests. He's not this curmudgeon, Scrooge-type God who is miserly with blessing. Instead, he is a good God who delights in answering the prayers of his children. As Luke chapter 11, verse 11 through 13 reminds us, we need to remember these scriptures. and You could turn there if you wish, but uh, the passage goes like this. This is Jesus, and he says, What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead give him... Uh, will instead of a fish, give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those those, uh, who ask him? Now Keller makes a comment on this very passage. He says this, Jesus is saying something wonderful and powerful. If earthly fathers who are sinful Ordinarily want to make their children happy. How much more committed is our perfect heavenly Father to our well-being and happiness? That means that there has never been a parent on Earth who wants joy for his or her children as much as your father in heaven wants joy for you, his child. There has never been a human father who wanted to answer his children's petitions as much as God wants to answer yours. That's a pretty incredible quote. God wants to answer your request. He wants what's best for you more than you could ever want for your child. He wants to bless. He wants to answer. He wants you to trust in him. He wants you to ask of him. And then when he answers, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. But I digress. Why God, why doesn't God answer us then? Well, I mentioned a couple reasons. It could be that we're praying with wrong motives. If we ask for something that wouldn't be best for us, God will be sure not to give it to us. It has to be accordance within his word or his will that is revealed within his word. And we could get into many other conditions of prayer, but we'll have to pick that up for another time. Here we can see that God does answer Zachariah's prayer. But because he didn't actually believe that God would answer, God makes him deaf and dumb. Now in the video, it just has him being uh, dumb. He can't speak but the reality is and we can see from verse 61 in Luke chapter 1 that they even have to make motions to him and he's he can't hear either and and now he's really in silence so you have the period of silence you have him being in silence where he needs to really concentrate on who God is and understand who who God is and what he's doing See, after John is born, Zechariah's tongue is loosed and he breaks into great praise. Now, we've looked at the man for a moment. I want us to stop now and examine the message. Examine the message. The song he sings, if you will. A prophecy that he makes. And what is it he says after John is born? He says this in verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. before him all our days see he breaks into great praise at what god has done he praises and the first thing and i love it the first thing he says after his son is born is praise the lord praise the lord you know when i was in india uh i i I, where i was i was interacting with people and it was almost as if praise the lord had uh replaced hello you know and i'd say good morning praise the lord I'd say, welcome, everyone. Praise the Lord. And it, it, I mean, almost every speaker got up and said, praise the Lord. And if you didn't say, praise the Lord, it was like something was wrong and people didn't know how to interact. And, and, and I, I'm grateful that people were praising, but then I stopped and said, are you really praising the Lord by just saying the words? Or do you really mean it in your heart when you say it? Don't just go through the motion and make it what I call a Christian filler. Don't do that. I mean, some were, some weren't. I mean, it can happen anywhere, not just in India. We we know people that do that. Maybe we've even done it. I've done it in my life. But we need not to take God's name in vain. We need to think about it and say, "Praise the Lord." Think about that. Think about that. And he's praising God for what God has done, and he recognizes God's faithfulness. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed. <coughs> Excuse me, His people. he's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. I mean, when's the last time that you praised God for what he's done in your life? When is the last time you praised the Lord? Really? I mean, even when we come together to worship. Sometimes I'm I'm like, I I feel like we're a bunch of Frankensteins. It's like you just got the body parts. Someone needs to shock you with life. To lift higher your voice. To understand the, the freedom and the joy that you have. I mean, imagine if, if being set free from prison. I, I mean, I watched that movie Unbroken. Anybody seen that movie Unbroken? It's a great movie. Uh, fantastic movie. Um, and uh, it's a story, I can't remember his first name. you remember his first name off the top of your head? What's his name? Yeah, Louis Louis Zeppinelli. Zampanini, who actually worked with the Billy Graham crusade after World War II. But he was a prisoner of war uh, during World War II. He was stranded in the ocean for several days. And you see him after he has been brought out of that POW camp, they've been liberated, and people are just shouting. I mean, there's no, there's no worry about what other people think of you in that moment in time. That's just un, an unmitigated joy. You see that with athletes all the time. You know, you see it at a great shot, everybody's going up, and they want to celebrate and jump, and... and why don't we ever do that in church? I mean, we don't get excited. You don't see people fist bumping. You know, you don't see that. I mean, why not? Because I don't think we have an understanding of but what God has done in our lives. We need to get more excited about what God has done. It's okay to raise your hands. Okay. There you go. Okay. Okay, I was just seeing if that happened again when I raised my hands. Seeing if it's. Woo! It's like a roller coaster. Okay, so we need to make sure that we are praising the Lord together, right? We need to be more excited, right? Right? It is Christmas season. This is the time that we celebrate Jesus. Is that? It's not, it's not good, it get down about what's going on in the culture. Think about what God's doing in your life. The kingdom of God is in you. Christ in you. The hope of glory. God is using you to be the light of the world. Don't worry about what's going on around you. Let God work in you. That's what he wants to do. He wants to bless you, just like he wanted to bless Zachariah. He wanted to, and he wants to bless us now. And here now, he's been let loose. He's praising God for what God has done, and he's praising God. I mean, if we also look at this message, we see that it's praise because of the prophecies that have been fulfilled we fail to remember that. I mean, that God, you know, a lot of the Bible is about prophecy of what God foretold would happen, and it did. You see that time and time again throughout the New Testament. I mean, even surrounding the birth of Christ, there are all these prophecies about his life that he would be called a Nazarene, that he would be born of a virgin, that he would, uh, I mean, that he would bring redemption to many different people. I mean, there's just prophecy after prophecy. And I, I went through and there's just exact prophecies. Matthew has 33, Mark has 5, Luke has 20, John has 16, and those are the direct fulfillments that are shown by chapter and verse, not the illusions. Or indirect prophecies, prophecies, when we look at that, it goes up astronomically. I mean, consider his birth. It was foretold that he would be born of a virgin and called Emmanuel, according to Isaiah 7.14. That he would be visited by king's bearing gift. Psalm 72.10 and Isaiah 60, verse 3 and verse 6. That he would be called out of Egypt. That would be Numbers 24, 8, and Hosea 11, 1, That he would be born in Bethlehem, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Attacked in a massacre of innocents, Jeremiah 31, 15. And then preceded by a messenger in the wilderness, Isaiah 40, verse 3 through 5, Malachi 3 and 1. Which, as we will see, and is none other than John the Baptist, the forerunner to Jesus. And you know what? There's more prophecies that are going to be fulfilled. We don't talk, I have to confess, we don't talk about that enough. But there are prophecies that are being and going to be fulfilled. There's so many to go. Just like when Jesus stood up, and the first time that he read from the scroll, he's talked about how giving, giving uh, sight to the blind, healing the lame, healing the sick. And then he sits down. But he, before he sits down, he says, these scriptures today have been fulfilled in your hearing. They've been fulfilled, meaning it's happened. But the thing is, is, he breaks off mid-sentence. And the next sentence is, the day of vengeance of our God, meaning that hasn't been fulfilled yet. He's saying that the kingdom has been inaugurated in me, and yet the fulfillment will still come. That Jesus wins. That he will come to rule and reign manifestly. There'll be no more question, no more sorrow, no more tears, no more injustice, no more, no more aspect of confusion. Confusion. We'll see him for all he is in all of his glory, and we shall be like him. Isn't that glorious? Now you can shout. Shout. You can shout. It's okay. I won't tell the other campuses. Okay? You can shout. It's all right. We need to be able to shout and understand that God's got prophecies that will yet be fulfilled. See, he knew that promises had been fulfilled, but Zechariah also knew that there was a promise that still awaited. A promise that still awaited. Look at verse 76 with me. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people and the forgiveness of their sin. See, God had given Zechariah a promise, a promise that his son would be a prophet, a prophet in the spirit of Elijah who would go before the Lord to prepare his ways and give the knowledge of salvation for the forgiveness of their sins. His son John, who became known as John the Baptist, would play that part. He looked forward in faith, knowing that his child was special. He would be the one who prepared the way for God himself. And John played his part perfectly, played his part perfectly matter of fact while he was baptizing in the wilderness after he'd grown up many people were flocking to them and he said this in Matthew chapter 3 verse 11 he says i baptize you with water for repentance but he who is coming after me is mightier than i whose sandals i am not worthy to carry he will baptize you with the holy spirit and fire his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire And when Jesus came, we read in John chapter 1, verse 29 through 34, he says this. When he saw Jesus coming toward him, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes one who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I thought I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Spirit of God. And just in two chapters later, in John chapter 3, verse 25 through 30, says this. A discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he was with you uh, across the Jordan to whom you bore witness. Look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. Hey, you're losing the crowd. Your numbers are going down, John. And And I love John's response. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness, bear me witness, that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. It was all about Jesus for him. His whole life, his whole purpose was to show and reveal Jesus to Israel. Matter of fact, Jesus gives such praise to John, he doesn't give to anyone else in all of Scripture. I mean, and, and, and honor to him as well. Matter of fact, after John is put into prison because he spoke out of its Herod's illegitimate marriage, he sends, he's down. He's wondering, why, Jesus, if you are the king of the world, the king of the universe, why am I languishing in this jail? And he sends his disciples, and his disciples show up to Jesus, and they say, are you the one who wants to come, or should we expect someone else? And then Jesus does something he never, ever, ever does. He goes and performs miracles right in front of him, and he goes back to him, and he goes, go tell him what you saw and heard. And then Jesus says in Luke chapter 7, he says about John the Baptist, he says, I tell you, among those born among women, there is none greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And what did he mean by that? It's a very strange expression. He's saying there that no one that's ever been born is greater than John the Baptist. But yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God, in other words, the one who is a beneficiary of my atoning death is greater than he because he didn't have that opportunity. He died before I could provide redemption. Now, we know that God lets the Old Testament saints, and they're saved by faith in him. uh, But we see here that Jesus' praise is unparalleled for John. And yet, we need to remember that as great as John was, his purpose was to prepare the way for Jesus. Look at verse 78 of Luke chapter 1. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the children grew and became strong in spirit, and the child grew, excuse me, and grew strong and uh, grew and became strong in spirit. And he was left in the wilderness until the days of his public appearance to Israel. See, we need to understand. And we see here that Zechariah shows us what is to come. There's something marvelous, something wondrous, something mysterious. And we need to make sure that we embrace the mystery. Christmas is all about mystery, is it not? how the great big God could make himself put on human flesh and make himself susceptible to the common cold. It's a mystery beyond us. It's a mystery how God could come and visit us, sinful as we are, the great, omnipotent, all-powerful, omniscient, wondrous God, but the second person of the triune God. Not that there's three God, there's one God in three persons, that he would assume flesh and come amongst us to show the depth of his love for us. We need to embrace That mystery. That mystery, and it is a mystery, as Romans chapter 16, verse 25 through 27 says, as Paul is, is just uh, ending Romans, the book of Romans in praise, he says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been revealed or disclosed, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of the faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ, Amen. See this mysterious person. I mean, it is Jesus, and he would be the one who would be um, bring light to those in darkness, light to those in darkness. He would be the light of the world, the one who showed men the evil intent of their hearts. He would show men their corrupt and sinful nature by the light of his presence, the power of his words in life, and the absolute purity of life by which he lived. He he not only was the light of the world, I mean, he is the essence of goodness and purity. And I like how C.S. Lewis said this. He said, in talking about why he believed in Christianity, he says, and I've shared this quote before because it's so amazing. I believe in Christianity... Christianity is, I believe that sun is, the sun is risen, not only because I see it, but, be, but because by it I see everything else. For him, he, he understood that, that Jesus was light for those in darkness, and it's by his light that we can even see light. And not only that, but he brought life for those who are dead. He would reach those who are living in fear under the last and most dreaded enemy, death. He would give life. Who could give life to those who are dead? Death is the last and greatest enemy. What kind of champion could defeat death? Only Jesus. And this figure that John would introduce would guide our feet into the way of peace. This mysterious figure would give light to those in darkness, life to those who are spiritually dead, and would guide our feet into the way of peace. The idea of road, life, movement, path. And he would give leadership for life. He would give leadership for our lives. He would guide us, and he shows us by his word as the power of the Spirit is working within us in the path that we are to walk that would give us and indicate peace. He is the dawning light who brought light to the Gentiles. He was light and life, and he came to to put away death. We have life through him. He is the life itself. And I want to read these two last passages for you, how he defeated death, enabled us to have life. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 through 15, he says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, and he himself likewise... Partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who is the power of death, that is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And then in Romans chapter 6, verse 5 through 11. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ... As we've examined the man, we've, we've really embraced and look, I mean, looked at the message, and now we've embraced the mystery that's there, and that is about Jesus. Everything about Christmas is about him. All these carols are about him. And it was to show that he would come and be the Savior of the world, and he would give hope that God still speaks through the person of his son. And his son is not unaware of what is going on in your life that he cares about you, that he's ready to forgive your sins. If you will confess your sins and repent of them, turn away from them, he will confess and embrace you and give you relief and give you peace and give you purpose and give you power to live the life that he wants you to live. He will place his spirit within you. He will fill you with the spirit and help you live that life he wants you to live. Now you can shout. That's a wondrous thing that God's not left us to be orphans, that God has given a power. We need that power. When I was in uh, India, and I'm going to end with this story, Jill Briscoe was there. Uh, For those who don't know, Jill's a very well-known international uh, author. Her husband is Stuart Briscoe. He was also one of the speakers. He was pastor of Elmbrook Elmbrook Church in uh, Elmbrook, Wisconsin, Um, a church that he took from 400 people to 7,000 by the time that he was done. And Jill is 80 years old, 80 years old, and she's speaking on the microphone. And it's amazing, and in in, in India, I have this quite frequently, and in, in different countries as well, the power goes out. Right? You ever had that happen? The power just goes out. And so Jill is speaking to a group of 2,000 people with just zero power. And she's trying to talk and trying to get above the voices of everyone else. And she can't, and the murmur, people can't hear, and they're talking with one another, and that, that, that just hum starts to get louder and louder. And then the power kicks in, and the amplification stops in, and she speaks, and then people get silent. See, when we don't have the Spirit of God, we can't speak, so pe- people can't really hear us. And all the things and circumstances of life get to be pretty loud. But when we're filled with the Spirit of God, we're tapped in Him that is amplified in the, and they dissipate. See, so we need the Spirit of God to help us live within that, that, that power and victory that God has for us and embrace that mystery that God has given you. He is, it's Christ in you, the hope of glory, that He will help you live the life that God wants you to live For his glory and your joy. Amen. 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 Come on, give me a. You got to give me one. Hey, that was almost there. One more time. Amen. Still weak. You need to practice. It's okay. But we're going to, we have that hope within us. And that's the reason to celebrate. Amen. Amen. There we go. All right, let's close in prayer and then uh, we'll have our benediction. Father we marvel at what you have done in and through the person of your son, that you gave light to those who are living in darkness, that you give us hope, that, Lord, you give us grace, that gift that we do not deserve, and you've given us mercy, withholding what we did deserve, because your son took the wrath of God upon himself, and now has set us free, and we have hope in and through him, life in and through him. And, Lord, we know that you are working. You're working in our lives, even when we can't see it, We know that you are there and you are not silent. And Lord, I pray for those who are struggling today. I pray for those, uh, for anyone here who does not yet know Jesus as Lord and Savior of their life. Lord, I pray that you convict them by the power of your Spirit, that you might draw them. Lord, you've been working in the silence of their lives. You've been leading them. You've drawn them even here today. And I pray, Lord, that they might receive you, that they might repent of their sins and embrace you and all that wondrous mystery and that you might give them peace and purpose. And Lord, for those of us who have, who have strayed, we've, our hearts have grown cold, Lord, we pray that you renew that fire within us. Lord, just as John said, he will come and baptize you with the spirit and with fire. Lord, that fire, may that river of living water, may that fire just overflow fl- from us. And Lord, as the the cacophony of voices around us starts to swell, but Lord, may we be filled with the spirit that we can live victoriously and powerful and put those things down and live above the fracas. So Lord, glorify your name in our midst. Be with us this holiday season. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, again, just a lot, last couple of closing announcements. If you want to stay for our newcomers tour, David will meet you uh, back by the double doors. Make sure you get a welcome tube. Just a quick tour, give you any, uh, answer any questions that you may have. If you are interested um, to either attend ladies or serve uh, at the women's Christmas dinner, please see uh, have Trudy Winsloff or Melissa Fleming or any of the other women's ministry team that is here today. Uh, they will be glad to... Uh, connect you with that. With that in mind, please stand as we close our benediction. And today we're going to have our benediction from Romans chapter 16, which I read earlier, which is Paul's benediction. He was ending this, his message in his letter to the Romans in a great deal of praise and doxology. And he says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that has been kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of the faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ and all of God's people said loudly, Amen! Go in peace. Have a great day, everyone.